Once more onto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another exciting second hour of the Dismal Sciences. Right? That's a bit of an ox. A dismal second hour of the exciting. That's not. No. Uh, It is the personal wealth coach, and we're here to talk about the exciting world of finance, uh, how it approaches the world, and how it approaches your personal area. Uh, You almost used one of my favorite words. Which one? Oxymoron. I mean, I love that word. That is really just a fascinating word. word. That just is a fantastic (laughs) word that means exactly what it sounds like it means. (laughs) An oxidated moron. (laughs) Uh, We have questions uh, hanging out there waiting for us. Um, So Roger has a question for us. And he says, because at the end of last hour, we were still discussing the issues in Europe uh, before I jumped into the taxes for the United States. So while you're on the subject of European trade, it made me wonder, has the Biden administration taken any steps to renew the U.S. participation in the Trans-Pacific Partnership? No. Simple answer, no. Uh, This is something that I have talked about quite a bit since the Biden administration came on. Um, our stances on the trade war have had some mild um, fixes for certain companies, countries. Uh, there's some mild allowances for things that aren't tariff due on Canadian stuff, on some Japanese stuff, and on some South Korean stuff. But essentially, we are still on the same trade war footing as we were during the Trump administration. So the big tariffs on steel and and aluminum still exist for the majority of steel aluminum trade. Those are the ones that were the big ones, but uh, washing machine, refrigerators, air conditionings, water heaters, uh, most of that stuff still stands. There have been some minor removals. Let me point out something about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. China was never part of it. The whole idea was to form an alliance to oppose China. That's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And when President Trump said, no, we're not joining the trans it wasn't a treaty, by the way, and, and never was intended to be a treaty. When he said, we're not joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it kind of muddied the water, to say the least. The Trans-Pacific Partnership has continued to grow. There's a lot of countries in it. China's not in it. China is fighting really hard to become part of it. And if they do, it will be exactly the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish uh, when the idea was to join it. It'll be a pro-China organization. Right now, it's an organization of a lot of smaller countries, excluding China and the United States. Uh, and, and the idea of getting out of the, Chinese, getting out of the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership because it would send jobs to China was exactly the opposite of what, it was, what the reality of it was. Now, having said all of that, the United States is continuing to negotiate entry into it. We were the ones that set it up, and then we yanked ourselves out of it in the middle of it. So go ahead. President Biden has said that he would consider rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership on condition that there were some changes made in it to labor rules and so on. Uh, so as to protect jobs in the United States. And there's a few other things that he wants to change in there too. So I'll Uh, give you a list. But I don't think it's going to happen. We need to be in it. We need to be in it to counter China because China is setting up its own trans-Pacific partnership with buddies where they show up with, uh, they said, you can either join our trade 
agreement or we can come and occupy your country. Yeah. So let me kind of flip this. What is the Trans-Pacific Partnership? It's a kind of a freed trade zone, kind of like what we have with Canada and Mexico. Um, and, and the, uh, the tariff-free shipments back and forth across the border. Uh, the Trump administration rewrote our free trade agreement with Canada and Mexico, and it wasn't tremendously different than what it was before, but it was redone, and, and so it's there. Uh, the USMCA, I think is what it's called, um, U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement instead of NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. And I read both, both agreements, by the way, and I've read them multiple times they're not drastically different. Uh, Trump says the new one's better. Uh, Clinton said the old one's better. It's politics. Okay, so we've got a free trade agreement with Canada and Mexico, and we can look at the impact in the economy, direct impact in the economy, to companies like Microsoft, Ford, uh, General Motors. You go down a list of when General Motors or Ford makes something in Canada, they don't have a tariff on the parts that they're shipping from Detroit to Canada because, and nor do they have a tariff on the automobile coming back from Canada after those parts arrived and got put into place. So for the companies that are doing business across those borders where there's not really a, a buy and a sell, Canada's not buying parts from the United States and then selling cars to the United States with those parts, Ford isn't selling to anyone. They're shipping it up to their Ford plant, putting it together and shipping it back. So that's a free trade agreement. Now there's a bunch of tariffs still on Canada and Mexico that go beyond that free trade agreement. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was to extend that to places like Japan and Vietnam and Australia and New Zealand and Peru and Chile. Well, basically a lot of folks around the Pacific Rim to directly compete against the industrial might of China. And we got pulled out of it. The Trump administration said it was a bad deal for the United States. There's not a lot of backing as to why it was a bad deal for the United States. He didn't like it, so we pulled out of it. And this is, again, politics. Okay, we're negotiating kind of half-heartedly to jump back into the TPP. That's what people call it. Why is it half-hearted? Because the Biden administration is no more pro-free trade than the Trump administration was. The Biden administration is old-school populist. The Trump administration was new-school populist. When we saw the demographic shifts during the Trump administration to the majority of union members becoming Republican, this is a normal demographic shift that happens every 40 years or so where one party becomes more populous than the other. They pass the baton back and forth. And Biden is still part of the old Democratic core party from 40 years ago that's all about unions and about we got to make sure that, that people get paid in the United States and not in Canada and not in Vietnam for things that we make. So if you recognize that on one subject, they would never admit this, but on one subject, Trump and Biden are in absolute lockstep. It is support for the American worker over profitability to a corporation when it comes to free trade. Now, you, again, you can anybody can come in and say that's a bad idea or a good idea. That's not our job. Our job is to look at this and say, what is the impact on the economy? 
whether or not we're protecting workers, that's a, an open question. When we look at the impact on the economy, the more you close borders, the more expensive things are. Um, typically, when you have a free trade agreement, it causes all members of that agreement to have their overall wages rise because it's easier to get things that you can make new things that people didn't even know they needed before at a cheaper price. So when you're trying to protect the worker, it's a very short-term protection when you're, when you're closing a border. Uh, and long-term, it does not benefit any workers when you shut that down. It can sh temporarily benefit the workers, but long-term really does not when you shut borders. <laughs> there's, there's a couple of things that in the big picture I'd like to talk about if we're good for a second. Yeah, well, I mean, we're talking about Hurricane Ian. Let's wrap yeah. that up. It's a big deal. Do, do, were you moving on to the next subject? No, I was going to include Hurricane. Okay, Ian then, yeah, please go and, right and ahead. And then move on, move on and then transition into a little bigger picture. Yeah, go right Hurricane ahead. Hurricane Ian just carved a path across Florida, and we have changed our estimate from a, we probably won't have a recession, and then this maybe year. a minor one yeah. uh, this year or next year. I am going to say that probably next year, the conference board will come back and say, in the fourth quarter of 2022, a recession began. Because recessions are defined by the total gross domestic product of the United States. And we might not have a recession in Texas, but I'm confident they will have a recession in Florida. And by the way, one of the things that was in the Wall Street Journal today, I haven't researched it thoroughly, is something I heard about from a retired insurance executive who recently retired, by the way, of the risk, the huge, the huge risk that property casualty companies are carrying in Central Florida. Because they have been insuring, particularly the older companies, have insured a lot of people. The people moved to Florida. The people kept their old insurance company, and they concentrated in Central Florida. They are thicker than fleas on a dog's back down there, old people. And my, my dogs don't have fleas, so, you know. Well, you just haven't had a dog with fleas. Anyway, the point is, when insurance companies set up their risk portfolio, which is where, particularly property casualty companies, and they look at where people live, uh, geographically so that they don't get too much concentration and they issue a policy. And then the people tend to stay with the company they're with for a long time. And the company tends to stay with their loyal customers. And that's really, really nice until they all start retiring or many of them start retiring and concentrating in the same place in the United States, which happens to be a really popular place for hurricanes to retire. Hurricanes and retire there too. Yes. Yes, they do. Yeah, they they, they go stop from being category five and to become tropical storms there. Yeah. Right. They, they retire as hurricanes. And uh, there was an insurance executive retired who was talking to me about the danger down there. And I thought that was pretty interesting. It's going to be in effect. And, and I think it's going to be in effect in the bond market uh, because what's going to happen in order to meet the claims of the, all the houses and destruction in Florida, insurance companies are going to have to sell something that they own. And it probably won't be timberland because timberland is uh, it, actually it's called forestry land. There is a company called timberland. Yeah. So if you try to figure out what's going with timberland, you get in trouble. Right. Those but are for, boots. For, you, these are boots that, here. Right. With forestry land really, really far down, they're probably going to have to sell bonds. And I just said earlier, we're in a bear market in bonds and it may exacerbate the bear market in bonds. The floor, the hurricane hitting Florida may cause interest rates to go up. Yeah. That sounds really goofy until you realize. Unless you play with dominoes and, and they all fall right. down, you know under you now understand how the economy works. 
the interest rates are based on the price of bonds. The more people are selling, the more selling of bonds that's going on, the lower the price goes and therefore the higher interest rates go. Uh, and I think there's about to be a lot of selling of bonds as insurance companies uh, have to come up with money to pay for houses that get blown away. This may change the, the plan book for the Federal Reserve. Yes. I suspect at their last meeting, they were planning on another three-quarter hike at their next meeting. Right, which I think they're going to do. Uh, and they might, but Ian might say it's a half a percent hike or a quarter percent hike, rather. <laughs> so, so there's some fluctuation here. They've now multiple times in a row had a three-quarter percent hike in interest rates, and it's beginning to have an impact across the economy they have to measure Ian as a factor of that. They are measuring Ian as a factor of that. And Ian will forever be a name associated with this, by the way. This storm is a large enough issue that people are going to talk about it for the next several decades. And hopefully you didn't name your son Ian recently because that's like naming someone Katrina in the wrong year. It's 2004. Yeah, well. We named her Katrina, and she's just going to be a sweet... Oh, no, everybody hates her. <laughs> um, James Bullard, who is a member of the Federal Reserve Board, and a, um, I respect what he has to say, made a speech late last week in, with when Ian was still was an obvious thing happening. And I think he's probably going to go with that. He said, the Federal Reserve is focused right now on quickly raising rates to a neutral level. Right. And what does that mean? If inflation is let's just say at the end of the year, we look at trailing inflation, and I'm just going to use a number here, is running at 4 4.5% 12-month trailing. Until the Federal Reserve gets its short-term rates above what we perceive as ongoing inflation, those rates are still stimulative. They're still making the economy run faster than it normally would. So they got to get to neutral, and his focus, he said, was to get to neutral by the end of the year. And Lael Brainerd just said the same thing. Yeah, and she also uh, brought something else to the fore, and this is very nice kind of dovetailing into the next thing. She said that all but the lowest, the shortest maturity are now at positive yields. And she said that kind of quickly in passing. When we're talking about neutral, when we apply inflation to a treasury yield, at the beginning of the year, across all of our all of our treasury bonds, we had negative yields. Now, the United States has been very proud of not being like you, the EU and having negative yields on paper. But when you applied inflation to it, they were negative. Uh, in January, uh, we from one end of the yield curve to the other, we were deeply negative. And the shorter term, the more negative. So a five-year was running at a negative 1.58%. We talked about this at the beginning of the year, that if, if you're losing money based on inflation right now across the board in treasuries. Well, in June, uh, we went positive all across from the five-year plus. We're now much more positive in the short-term five-year than we are in the 30-year. The numbers for the shorter term are still negative. So we're not on the short term at a neutral rate yet. The longer-term rates are constrictive. They are um, not stimulative. They are made to slow down the economy. 
So we may have already gone too far on the long-term rates. Go ahead. Yeah, but when they raise three quarters, that's not long-term, that's short-term. Correct. That's the point. And it's it just very trickles, short-term. trickles through the rest. And, what, yeah. and what, what James Bullard's speech said, and I really think he thought about it very well and made a good speech, is in the short, get our short-term rates up to where they're neutral, then raise them just a little bit. Lil Brainerd said the same thing. So I think I think it's what they're going to do, and we're going to see a pretty inverted yield curve. Uh, but you're, Ian is you're right. Ian is going to force the long term interest rates even higher. Yeah. And there's another factor that's going on out there, and you got to keep your eye on this one if you want to figure out what's going on. And that is, there are three major economies in the world: the European Union, the United States. Not necessarily in the United States is the biggest by far. Uh, then China, and then the European Union. The European Union is in a world of hurt because, among other things, I, I think that's uh, a continent of hurt. It's a continent of hurt. Just, I think just to from be pedantic pers- here, you are completely correct. However, I think from a <laughs> perspective of being in the European Union, it's the whole world. <laughs> yeah. And in case some of you didn't notice, and apparently there was somebody who asked me this morning about it, so I think people haven't noticed. Somebody blew up. Three of the four pipelines that run under the North Sea that deliver gas from Russia to Europe. Yeah, it's the f- single largest methane emission since we've been recording it. Yeah, and and when I say blew it up, it didn't it, it, a leak. Okay, well these are real thick steel pipes, high nickel steel pipes encased in concrete, and there was a seismic event, and three of them sprung huge leaks at the same time. Now the the Speculation. I'm seismic right event, from, by the way, is uh, um, recorded as a one-time event that looks much more like an explosion than any kind of Earth movement. Right. Uh, matter of fact, it looked like the explosion of a small nuclear weapon initially. Uh, only there was no nuclear weapon. It was just three of them went off at once. And there's some intense speculation among military commentators who have good histories that there probably were meant to be four and one of them didn't go off because there's four pipelines. Which um, which tells you that, that there's probably a bomb still down there. Yes, which means I wouldn't go I wouldn't want to go looking anyway with all that <laughs> methane boiling up through the ocean. Right. But um all this is happening at the same time. And it's why why are we mentioning this on an economic show? Frank, frankly, I think there is a at least a reasonable possibility at this point that the Russian government could suddenly collapse. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a higher before. possibility than before. The fact that we're seeing the kind of exodus that we are uh, from Russia. Now, this is interesting. All these men that are leaving Russia because they're being called up for the draft, all, I mean, the majority of them are still pro-Putin. And that is something interesting. Um, if, when you look at the Telegram uh, and social media posts by the people that are leaving, one of the things that is trending highest is, hey, you've got to remove the V and the Z from your car or they're not going to let you leave the country. They're not going to let the, the, the new country's not going to let you in because they consider these to be Nazi symbols and aggressor symbols. When they're a symbol of patriotism in Russia based on the special military operation that the rest of the world sees as just an abject attack against their neighbor. Uh, so the, the movement now, the protests in Russia are getting larger, but it looks a lot like the Vietnam era in the United States. The violence isn't, 
it, it's not like what we saw when the Russian government was overthrown during the Tsar era. Um, I think you need some more deaths in Ukraine for that to happen. You had something you wanted to say here. You're pregnant with thought. Well, I, I wanted to bring this around. Whether or not the Russian government collapses, it's, it's in bad shape right now. And and, I, and this is, to me, well, it, well, it, it reminds me of the collapse of the czars because the, the beginning of the end of the czarist regime is when they did a full mobilization and drafted everybody and right. people began to protest the drafts. And they were losing. And by the way, we got news just a few minutes ago that Russians, the Russians are withdrawing. Officially, no, they officially have published that they're withdrawing um, troops from, from Limon, Limon, in and because of fear of it, because of danger of encirclement. Well, they are the already Ukrainians encircled. Said, it's a little late. <laughs> <laughs> We've encircled your town. You're not withdrawing anymore. And that may be uh, why the Russians said it. You, they usually don't admit that they're retreating. They'll say as a gesture of goodwill. We have allowed the Ukrainians to have this back. In this case, they're saying we're retreating so that they don't get encircled, but it probably means we're telling their family that they're not there anymore because we got away, but they're really encircled. Well, what I'm trying to say is there's, there's a couple of major economic dangers that have appeared that have nothing to do with the cyclical economy of the United States or anything to do with the economy of the United States, but they're going to have an effect. One is a collapse of the government in Russia, as much as we think that won't be a big deal. It will be a big deal. And I remember when it collapsed, when the Soviet Union fell and the market took a temporary nosedive. Uh, China is in pretty bad shape economically right now and maybe a lot worse than is appearing. They may be about to suffer a real estate collapse. So those are the big threats, the local short-term threat, obviously, and it is having an effect on the market. When you look at the damage that was done, and the, the number of billions of dollars of damage that we don't have a, a fix on that yet in, in Florida. But here's the good news. And I know that this is bad good news, but right now, good news is bad news and bad news is good news. All that stuff in Florida is going to get rebuilt. And when it gets rebuilt, it's going to be a shot in the arm to the economy. We've seen this again and again and again. A hurricane goes through, the market goes down, we get a negative quarter in the GDP. If there's a minor recession, it exacerbates the problem on the national numbers. But folks, all that stuff's got to be rebuilt. And it's going to take a lot of people being hired and a lot of money being spent. And we have a lot of cash in reserve in the United States. Across the board in the United States, we have huge cash reserves. And we're going to expend some of those cash reserves that are just sitting there doing nothing. And that's going to be a kick in the butt to the economy. Now, the Fed's not real happy about that, I'm sure, because that could be inflationary, like the price of lumber could go back up again rather quickly because they're going to need a lot of it to build stuff in Florida. And supply is still limited. We are also in a position that we really haven't been since World War II. We are the island of prosperity and stability in a world that is in a great deal of pain. Uh, China's economy, they seem to still be fixated on the fact that they're simply going to keep COVID out of their, they're going to keep a, a, a viable virus out of their economy, out of their country. It ain't going to happen, folks. They're going to continue to get viral outbreaks. And until they finally figure out that lockdowns don't stop viruses, they just temporarily slow the process. Yeah, you have to have a backstop. If you do a, a, a lockdown, you have to come in with something to prevent it from happening again, or you just have forever lockdowns. And unfortunately, their, their viral vaccine wasn't adopted. Every place it was adopted in the world found out that it didn't work. Uh, and they don't want to use ours. So the, the there, there's a Sinovac. danger there. Now, why, yeah. why, why am I bringing all this up? In the short term, 
we do a lot of business with Europe. We used to do business with Russia. And it is hurting our economy that Europe is in the, is in the trenches. Uh, we do a tremendous amount of business. Matter of fact, what, 98% of the iPhones are actually were manufactured in China. And they're trying to move it to India and other places, but it's going to take years to do that. And iPhones are a big product. And that's an example of how interlaced we are with China. So, folks, the short-term pain is, uh, is there. Long-term, and we've seen this, Jake and I have seen this again and again and again over the years. Long-term, this is literally a birthing process. The United States is in the enviable position of being the one stable place to go where manufacturing continues, where everything continues, which is, by the way, why the dollar, you can say that the British pound is low. You can say the euro, which is down to 98 cents now, I think it was 98, six cents at one point, has dropped. Or you can say, which is what the rest of the world is saying, my, amazingly, the dollar is hitting near record levels against everything else. Why? Because people recognize we happen to be living in the most stable, secure, and economically healthy place on the planet. And that's the reality. And we, every time this has happened in the past, the United States in the longer term, and by longer term, I only mean like two to three years, has prospered tremendously, which is why I said earlier, I'm optimistic. Why am I optimistic in the face of a bear market, in the face of bad things happening all over the place? Because I look around and I look out at I-35 and I look at America and, and I look at what's going on in the United States and the fact that manufacturing continues to roar forward in the United States nicely. Uh, services tend to roar forward in the United States nicely. And the Federal Reserve is concerned about slowing things down. Whereas in the rest of the world, in the United Kingdom, they're trying to prop things up. In Europe, they're trying to prop things up. In China, they're trying to figure out how to prop things up to keep them from collapsing. In the United States, we're trying to figure out how to slow things down. Step back and look at that perspective, particularly if you're an investor in the markets, and realize that this is short-term pain, but in the longer, not very much longer, I don't think, term, it inevitably in the past has benefited us. And I like to get, well, I know I've gone on. I'm one more thing, and then I'm going to pass it back to you. I just looked at a statistical analysis of what happens when we have a major decline in the markets in September, except for one month, one year, October 1987, <laughs> which I don't think we're in, by the way. That has resulted in a gain in October that accelerated through the rest of the year. Right. That's just that's just statistics. But this is not 1987 by any wildest stretch of the imagination. And in every other instance, going back as far as we can go, when there was a major decline in September, the rest of the year, the market rose. Now, uh, and that includes, and people say, well, what about 1929? Well, in 29, we had a bull market going in September, folks. It wasn't until October that it crashed. But anyway, that's it. And I'll pass it back to you. Yeah. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guessed from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a 
professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, We also have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, Thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.